0: Good afternoon. Welcome to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. (sighs) Tell you, I love playoff baseball until I don't. Watching Joe Musgrove dominate last night, watching the Padres move on, looking at the matchups for the rest of this playoff stretch. Yeah, there is. Uh, there's fear of missing out. There's knowing you're missing out. There's knowing you're missing out on the coolest part of the year, the most fun part of the year. It's not my favorite realization. It certainly wasn't my favorite weekend. This is Jays Talk Plus. Uh, we're with you two to five today. We'll be two to three the rest of the week as we close out the season for both the Toronto Blue Jays and for Jays Talk Plus. A lot to get to. If you are still consuming Jay's content, uh, thank you. Glad you stuck with us. If you're not, you're not hearing this. So I don't know what to say to follow that one up. Uh, We do have a a pretty loaded show today as we go through what went wrong and go through what comes next. A lot of that we can't answer today necessarily. Ross Atkins will speak to media tomorrow tomorrow. During this hour, so we'll bring you that audio live and, and we'll, you know, I almost said we'll pick apart what, uh, what he had to say, which I guess I shouldn't assume ahead of time, but, uh, yeah. yeah, I probably can assume that. So, uh, we also have things like arbitration projections out now. We could start to take a look at the the budget for the off season, the potential free agents. We'll get to some of that today. We also have to dissect how they got here and, and The big answer is, well, it's baseball. And after 162 games, you don't really know who the best team is. So in a best two of three series, random stuff is going to happen. And that is true. There were also a lot of controllable factors that went poorly controlled over the course of the weekend, over the course of the season. So it's autopsy day, so to speak. Uh, We'll be joined a little later by Julia Kreutz of MLB.com. Ben Nicholson-Smith will be here with us for the entire 3 o'clock hour. Uh, We've got Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic and Michael Bauman of Fangraphs a little later as well. And we'll ask Julia, Ben, and Caitlin some of the same questions. We'll try not to make the show repetitive, but we do want to see how the prominent voices around the Jays, the prominent voices we've brought on Jays Talk Plus throughout the year, feel about where things stand right now and the big questions facing the team moving forward. Oh, yeah, I forgot it's a uh, waiver claim day in the NHL. Elliot Friedman going going ham with the the waiver claims. Um, there will be no transactions for the Jays for a little bit. Uh, you got to wait until roughly two weeks after the the World Series ends for stuff to start picking up. Uh, the winter meetings are the first week of December. So we're going to have to sit here with these questions for a good amount of time. If you missed it, if you missed it and you're listening to a Jays radio show, uh, I don't know what you're doing with yourself. Nobody missed it. The Jays were swept by the Seattle Mariners on the weekend. Two games to nothing. They lose game one for nothing. It's a shaky Alec Manoa start. He ends up giving them at least a little bit of length, but the bats can never get going against a dominant Luis Castillo. Excuse me. I had to sneeze. 4-0 4-0 game one loss. Uh, game two, the Jays get up 8-1. It looks like we're headed for a Sunday game. It looks like I'm headed for a Sunday show with Ali from down at Rogers Center. The Jays lose 10-9. to It's a calamity of errors. They had a win probability that was over 99% at one point, which, uh, yeah, baseball's existed for well over 100 years, and there are a lot of games every year, so sometimes teams are going to blow 8-1 leads. But probabilistically, that sucked. Uh, that's the official data term for blowing an eight to one lead to lose 10 to nine. Um, I will say, I, the one part of it, there are a lot of parts of it I didn't like, but there was also a, a kind of an immediate, well, that's Toronto sports for you. And it is when it comes to the Toronto Maple Leafs, for sure. Uh, producer J.R. Manitat and I were uh, discussing before the show where this Jays loss being up 8-1 would compare to certain Leaf events. The Raptors won a championship three years ago. This is not some, like, huge Toronto sports thing that um, permeates all areas. And, yeah, the Raptors had some frustrations on the way up, and they're not a championship team right now. Maybe something I'll be talking about starting next week. I don't know. Um, It's not a Toronto-wide sports thing, uh, but this was... A familiar feeling if you have gone through the 2015, 2016, 2020, 2021 Jays. If you've gone through the last couple decades of Toronto Maple Leafs fandom. If you remember back to some of the Kyle and DeMar Raptors years. Yeah, it's a familiar feeling. Here's the thing about the last decade or two compared to the decade or two before that. All the Toronto teams went from never being in the playoffs to always being around the playoffs. And that means the stakes are higher. The leverage is higher and the hurt is higher when things don't work out. Now, again, you lose a two game series. There is some dumb luck involved. How many times are Boba and George Springer going to converge on a ball like that? Not come up with a collide, have a player injured. That's a, a pretty rare circumstance. How often is Jordan Romano going to not come through for you? Well, it barely happened all year. How often are the Jays bats going to be shut out for an entire game? That happened a little bit more frequently this year, but the Luis Castillo game was a statistical outlier, both in terms of Castillo's performance and the Jays inability to stick to their plan at the plate. There are blips and there are things that you can control that you didn't. So I want to go through. I know that there's probably not a huge appetite for going back through every little detail of the two games, but there are some decisions that were made both in the course of those two games and over the course of the year by this front office that informed some of what happened. So I know this is more of a Jays talk with Blair and Barker on Saturday discussion, but the big one was yanking Kevin Gosman when the blue Jays did. So they let Kevin Gosman pitch to Adam Frazier. Who's a lefty. Now, Kevin Gosman has Reverse platoon splits. He has a splitter that has rarely been hit for power this year. He gets through Frazier and the Jays go to Mesa to face Carlos Santana. Now Santana's a switch hitter. He does hit lefties a little worse for home run power, but he's much better against them in general. So that move just before getting to the Gosman aspect of it, putting Santana on his left side or on his right side, rather slightly limits the home run potential, but it increases your potential for Seattle to continue having a big inning because Santana is better all around from that side of the plate. You can also look ahead and see that, yes, there are two lefties coming up, but one of them will get yanked for Dylan Moore, a right-handed hitter who is very good uh, with the platoon splits in his favor. So my issue here before we get to the Gosman part of it is if you are going to bring Tim Mesa in, in that spot, it should have been a batter earlier because the logic that you're applying to the Santana plate appearance and the trickle down through the rest of the order should apply with Adam Frazier, a lefty who doesn't hit lefties well before that. So I'm not advocating that Gosman should have come out there, but I'm saying if you were committed to going to Meza for the bottom part of that order, He should have come in for Frazier because otherwise there's a logical inconsistency here. The other part of it is that I think you just have to trust Kevin Gosman there. Now, Kevin Gosman is a guy that you have chased for years as a franchise. He's a guy that you gave a very large five-year contract to this offseason. He's a guy that has been a very, very good number two for you all season long. 335 ERA, monster strikeout rate, doesn't walk anyone. Doesn't give up a lot of home runs, especially with the splitter. And yeah, he'd gotten in some trouble in that inning off of a lot of soft contact. To that point, he'd also been dominant prior to that inning. I just want to let my guys go in a spot like that. And I was actually talking with Ricky Romero about it on the weekend and it was interesting to look around baseball this weekend, and as our pal Sarah Langs of MLB.com pointed out, um, five different pitchers went seven innings or more. We're already at more this weekend than all of last year uh, in the opening round, so we've already seen more longer starts from starters. Maybe Gosman only gets you through that inning, and then he's out. Maybe Gosman gives up the same runs that Tim Meza did. Either way, I would rather go down with my five-year $110 million top-of-the-rotation borderline Cy Young candidate ace then a loogie out of the bullpen in an era where you got to th- face three batters. And again, there's a logical inconsistency to when Meza came in, to what you were trying to accomplish by turning Santana around to his other side, by looking at Gosman's reverse platoon splits and what that splitter does against lefties, it's not the whole season right there, but I do think that it's a lesson as we continue to head down the path of, well, analytics determine this. And you guys obviously know if you listen to the show that I I lean pretty heavily to the analytics side of things. I I do think the short hook for your aces is often a mistake. Why are you paying these guys five years, $110 million if you don't trust them in a big spot in the sixth inning without a huge pitch count in a game that prior to some soft contact, that guy had been dominant in. It was a little disappointing. And I think Kevin Gosman probably would have liked the ball in that situation too. Uh, A couple other things from that game that we can kind of pick at some, somewhat related to the Mesa Santana thinking um, they didn't pinch run for Alejandro Kirk when he got to first base in the bottom of the seventh with nobody out. Now that is, if this is a regular season game, um, If it's a closer game, it's defensible because at that point, Alejandro Kirk could have come up again. Uh, But the scenario in which Alejandro Kirk comes up again in that game is either you added a bunch of runs because your order turned around in two innings or you blew the game. So what are you holding off Alejandro Kirk pinch run for? Is it because you're worried you won't have his bat when your lead is up to 10 runs? Is it because you think you could blow this game? Uh, It was a little bit of managing not to lose, I think. And it didn't end up mattering. It just, I just, I thought that that in combination with the Mesa decision was a little perplexing. Um, the other big one, of course, and this is because George Springer was injured, we still don't have a firm update on, on where George Springer is after that tough collision. Now, there's been a lot of debate about Boba role in that as well. Um, the truth is, is that's just a really, really difficult play for everyone involved. So there was a 75% catch probability when that ball comes off the bat, that doesn't account for the fact that Springer got a poor jump on it, that once Springer starts going full bore and Boba is also coming over a catch probability can't take into account things like, well, you got a tiny bit of a bad jump on it. So you're playing from behind and you have another moving object in your space. So when your brain is trying to figure out, you know, that that spatial patterning uh, to figure out how to get to that ball and, and when to accelerate and decelerate or dive uh, or when to get out of the way, that's a really difficult thing to, to parse in real time, even if you've made that play uh, uh, dozens of times over the course of your career. Should Bo have peeled off earlier? Uh, probably in that case, I I think you like the outfielder's chances better running in and and you have the infielder kind of back him up in case he misses the ball. But it was also a very loud Roger center. Maybe Springer called him off and, and Bo didn't hear it. Maybe there was some other sort of miscommunication. That one, the outcome there given everything at play is just one of those one in a million things. George Springer being in center field at that point is something you could pick at. Now, Whit Merrifield got taken out of the game earlier. Um, they said afterward it was about the defense in the outfield. They wanted a natural outfielder out there, um, not because he got dinged in the noggin with a slider from Diego Castillo, uh, although I'm sure that didn't hurt the discussion either. So they bring Rymal Tapia in to play left field. Now, that's a bit of a questionable one, even in the sixth inning, because Jackie Bradley Jr. is supposed to be on this roster f- for that role, for the defensive replacement. Jackie Bradley Jr. has not played very much left field. Maybe it's a scenario where you put Bradley in center, move Springer to right, move Teoscar Hernandez to the left. Maybe you don't want to mess with Teoscar Hernandez, and, and Teoscar Hernandez almost certainly doesn't make the play that Rymal Tapia didn't make anyway uh, a little later. It's just a little odd to be in this, the part of the game where you were doing substitutions like that. And Jackie Bradley Jr., the guy you you picked up as a post-deadline free agent, the guy who beat out Bradley Zimmer, who you gave 100 games to this year to play exactly that role, uh, wasn't used. So you look at your bench, well, Bisio wasn't used as a pinch runner when there was a spot for that. Um, Gabriel Moreno, we we kind of figured he wouldn't get used... Jackie Bradley Jr. didn't get used in a defensive replacement situation. He did once George Springer got hit. And ironically, uh, he was then the leadoff hitter as well, uh, which came back to double bite them. I don't know. It just uh, there was some incongruence again in what we expected them to do, what they actually did and how they built the roster out around that. Some of it, again, is just. It's baseball. It happens. Anthony bass was used in the right spot and he was just bad for really his first time as a blue Jay against right-handed hitters. You can't really control that. Uh, Jordan Romano has to be tasked with a six out save in a very difficult, high leverage spot. And he doesn't come through. He was pretty hard on himself after, but that's a, if you were going to rank the toughest situations, a closer could be asked to close out. That's that's right up there. The Springer and Bo collision is what it is, a a complete random one-off. However, through all of these things, some of the questions we've talked about all year, since August especially, and heading into the playoffs reared their heads. Now, the Anthony Bass choice, the Tim Mesa choice, the turning things over to Trevor Richards types and Zach Pop types the day before – While that didn't backfire, as Seattle was throwing out an army of flamethrowers, Los Bomberos, it was pretty clear that the Jays hadn't done enough at the deadline when it came to their bullpen. We knew that. And we knew that they were trying to get by on a, a bullpen that didn't miss a lot of bats. And it was a bullpen that got tasked with missing some bats in some big spots. And they weren't able to do that. And this is the value of missing bats versus being a weak contact reliever type. Over 162 games, it's just about if you get it done. In one game, though, I like my chances missing bats better than I like my chances of a ball in play, not finding a hole or or squibbing through or something like that. And that's before getting to that. You know, if Mitch White was supposed to help the starting pitching depth, there'd be a long man in the bullpen that didn't really factor into these two games other than, you know, you say Kikuchi's spot in the, in the bullpen that it seems unlikely he ever would have been called on. Anyway, the trade deadline was what it was. We all thought that at the time, but it does resurface some questions that I hope Ross Hackens gets asked tomorrow. And we'll, we'll talk to Julia and Ben and, and Caitlin about it throughout the show. One of the biggest questions I have is did you not go in more aggressively at the deadline because you thought this team was good enough or because you thought this wasn't the year to push in? And if it's the former, if it's that this team is wasn't good enough yet, then I'd have to ask a follow-up of, well, why did you push some assets in then? Why did you do a half-measure trade deadline? And how is this team going to get to good enough? Because there's not a ton of flexibility in it. And yes, Max, I know that Bomberos means firefighters in Spanish. We talked about that setting it up. The backstory there is Andres Munoz wanted to be a firefighter when he was a kid, ended up being a a terrific relief pitcher instead. And the Seattle bullpen has adopted Los Bomberos as as a name. I didn't mean that... In saying flamethrowers, that was Bomberos. Those were separate things that just happened to contrast. My bad. Um, So the bullpen is a thing. The question marks about was this team just not good enough to supplement at the deadline? Or was it just not the the time? And if it's not the time, when is? Because as we're going to talk about with Ben Nicholson-Smith in the 3 o'clock hour... One of the hardest parts about a missed opportunity like this, and it is that I know the Jays met expectations. They made the playoffs. They won one more game than the year prior. They were basically right in line with their Vegas win total over under. They met the kind of bare minimum expectation for this year. Cool. It's a huge missed opportunity in this era of the franchise. It's three years now where one year sure. The weird expanded playoffs short season, but you got there. I mean, you could have at least made a run of it. I I don't think anyone can hold that against them given how young the players were and how silly that that season was. But last year you missed the playoffs by one game and we're kicking yourselves all year for it. And now you get in and that's good, but you only won one more game. It's not like you were significantly better. I would, you could argue that this was a worse team this year than the year prior. And then you get swept in two games. Well, part of what baseball's economics demand is that you strike while your good young players are good and young. And I hate to have this part of a discussion that can sound a little anti-labor or wage-suppressing or something like this, but it's the reality of baseball economics that... While Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette and Alec Manoa are giving you three and four and five win seasons for next to no money, that's going to be the easiest time to build the roster around them. That's when you can spend money on George Springer, on Hyunjin Ryu, on Jose Brios. And yeah, some of those things don't work out. Kevin Gosman, that one has, has worked out fine so far. Um, as those young players get more expensive... The burden then shifts from how do we spend money to supplement these guys to how do we supplement these guys without spending money? Because I don't think this is a franchise that's going to have a Dodgers-level budget. Um, We've heard Mark Shapiro talk in the past about uh, the team not really pushing the luxury tax threshold. Now, the luxury tax threshold has gone up, so there's a little extra wiggle room there. But either way, you're not going to continue having the, in relative terms, the budget for Springer and Ryu and Kikuchi and Barrios and Gosman and and even a Chapman type once Vlad and Bo and Manoa are making money commensurate with their performance. It gets harder. The team building side of this gets harder. It's why you can look at Alex Anthopoulos in Atlanta where they've continued to sign good young players to long-term deals that... It's kind of a risk pooling strategy, honestly. Not every one of those guys is going to hit. One or two of those guys might end up making that contract look bad. Young players are hard to project forward like that. But all you need is a couple of those deals to be good, and you have a cost certainty and a roster certainty and a personnel certainty for the next five, six, seven years coming off of several division titles. So that is a way to extend your window. And it's, there is some risk, but you pool that risk by signing multiple players like that. Now, the Jays don't have that number uh, of good young players. They have good young players, um, but some of them are going to be priced out of what Atlanta has given to some of their guys, and some of their guys just aren't good enough to warrant those kind of deals yet. They're in a weird in-between like that. Um, and I don't mean to draw the Anthopolis comparison because it's Anthopolis. It's just Atlanta maybe offer some lessons in how to build with a young core. You can look at Washington from not that long ago and yeah, they won a world series, but no pieces that world series team are still around and they were not able to sustain it. And maybe you're okay with that. Maybe it's just uh you just keep pushing, you win the world series. And then if it falls apart from there, you're okay with it. That's fine. I couldn't, I couldn't fault anyone for that, but you want to keep your window open longer. You want to give yourself as many opportunities as possible and maximize those opportunities. The Blue Jays missed a big opportunity this year. I still think they're a better team than the Seattle Mariners. Certainly a better team than the Tampa Bay Rays. Probably a better team than the Cleveland Guardians. Maybe even a better team than the New York Yankees. Uh, None of that matters. You got knocked out in two games and you get to, like you did last year, sit here for a couple months and stew in what could have been. There are enough pieces here for this team to be good for a long time to come. But the roster building side of it gets harder from here. The tinkering and tweaking gets harder from here. The keeping everyone together and on point and on message and figuring out who the right voices are to guide that gets harder from here. Last year was the innocent climb, to use a Pat Riley term. This year, we saw how the weight of expectations can really show cracks in a team or, or weigh on them. Next year is uh, is going to be more of that because it's not only expectations next year. It's urgency and it's what's going to be different this time. We got a whole offseason to sit with uh, how to improve things. Uh, let's take a break. Let's tag in Julia Kreutz of MLB.com, and we'll see what her personal favorite coping mechanisms are as we try to work through this last week of Jay's Talk Plus. Uh, And yeah, we're going to look a a lot ahead to what the offseason could look like and what needs to change, but we can do one more segment of commiserating, I think. Julia Kreutz joins us next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. A lot of people saying nonsense in the text line. Fire back a little more than usual today. Uh, We're joined now to help us process through this. She picked that song. Julia Kreutz of MLB.com, of BlueJays.com, of Mariners.com. Everywhere, Julia. Uh, How are
1: you? I'm doing all right. I am uh, giggling at the song choice. Thank you very much for, for accommodating.
0: I, I tried to create a playlist today that struck the right tone and, uh, you know, dancing on your own after you get eliminated and and you've got to look ahead to, uh, other teams playing for the next month or so. It it felt, uh, it felt like it fit. So good choice on your part. Um, Julie, I got to ask you after, and this doesn't have to be about baseball, but, uh, what is your favorite coping mechanism?
1: What is my favorite coping mechanism? Just, as, just in general.
0: Yeah.
1: Oof. Um, ice cream, I guess, and uh, facetiming a family member, and ugly crying. That would be that mm. would be
0: my top three. That's a good top three. Speaking of number two, <laughs> uh, do you have room for one more in Panama?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'll that'll be fun, Blake. You know what? After the season ends like that, especially. In that tone, you sort of uh, start looking forward to what's ahead. And I'm certainly very, very excited to go on vacation and just maybe uh, forget about uh, about baseball and everything that transpired for a few days.
0: (laughs) Yeah, uh, for a few days. But you can't do that yet. I'm going to make you uh, go through it with me here. Um, What will stick out to you the most from that 2-0 squandered series against the Mariners for the Blue Jays?
1: Honestly, uh, it was a game filled with with decisive moments and, and stunning moments at that. But I think to me, what will stick is Anthony Bass and sort of the inability to get an out there and really so uncharacteristic from what we saw after he joined the Blue Jays throughout the season when he started with the Marlins, he was having such a good year Uh, He was in the role of closer for a couple of a couple of outings this year, a reliable guy. And uh, when push came to shove there, he just uh, couldn't get an out for the Blue Jays. It's funny to think that fans were clamoring for bullpen additions at the trade deadline. Bass was the prized addition at the trade deadline out of the bullpen. And it just did not work out in game two.
0: Yeah, that's a, it's a tough one there. You know, there are tough spots throughout all of it. Um, The Mesa thing was a, was a big discussion on Saturday. You mentioned Bass. Um, What did you make or or what did you learn? Do you think about John Schneider as a manager over the last, well, I was going to say 48 hours They're they're past Mm -hmm. us now, but over those 48 hours.
1: Yeah. You know, I, honestly, I'll, I'll repeat what I've been saying kind of all year. I never thought that the Blue Jays problem was management. Um, John Schneider has been very strategic when it works out. He's a hero. And when it doesn't, he gets dragged on Twitter, right? It's a, it's a thankless job really. When you think about it, uh, did it make sense on paper to bring in Tim, Tim Mesa? No, I think we were all sort of scratching our heads at that. Right. As it was announced in the press box that he was the one coming in. Uh, Maybe the Blue Jays saw something that, you know, warranted that matchup there against Santana. It did not work out. And we would have been having a very different conversation maybe had it worked out. That's just the nature of the playoffs. Uh, A tiny mistake, whoever blinks first. And uh, the Blue Jays not only blinked, but it seems like they uh, took a nice power nap there at one point.
0: Yeah, a little bit of that. Um, I know that you were on Mariners' side of things as well, but what does it say to you uh, about the, you know, how this is going to resonate for the Blue Jays when you hear an Alec Manoa being really hard on himself or a Jordan Romano being really hard on himself uh, after the fact? Like, this is. You know, some of these guys are young. Romano's not really young anymore. George Springer certainly not young. Uh, Kevin Gosman, but there are a couple young players on this team. And, and for the Vlad and Bo types, it's not their first time going through this. Although this was a, a more real season and certainly one with bigger stakes. Um, Manoa, you know, not a guy that we, we'd ever really seen need to get down on himself because he'd always been so good. Um, how do you think that this affects them moving forward?
1: I think it's a learning experience, Blake, Uh, and I think that, you know, when sort of the dust settles and we get to breathe again and just be normal and people forget about the Blue Jays for a little bit because the Leafs are playing or the Raptors are playing or whatever, uh, things will come into perspective here. And we will understand that, one, yes, it was a, a massive meltdown, but... There are many learning opportunities out of this. This is, you're talking about Alec Wanoa. This is a guy who had never seen a playoff game before. And yes, he faltered in the first inning, but what stuck with me from his outing was his ability to limit damage and just get back into the driver's seat. That is invaluable experience. And when I talked to Kevin Gosman uh, before his game two start, Uh, or before the series started, actually, Um, that's something that I asked him, you know, what do you you make of the young guys coming in and having this first experience or the first experience with fans or whatever it may be? And that is exactly what he said. Any postseason opportunity is a valuable one, and it comes with lessons that you just can't have in the regular season. And so it's like John Schneider said as well, it's hard to believe it right now, but this will make this group better. And with the the years of control still on the Blue Jays side, this team will come back pretty much with the same makeup for next year, and they will be stronger for it.
0: You have to hope so. And you know the John Schneider element of it is probably the most interesting because he's grown up with these guys coming up through the minors and being on the major league bench, and then shifting into this role. I know when there's a midseason coaching change or manager change it's it's an imperfect window to evaluate because well you didn't get to set your own coaching staff and you didn't get to set the talking points in the messaging day one and, and have that input on you know if there's input on roster decisions and things like that um is your read on it given john schneider's attitude through all of this and, and kind of consistent tone like like do you think he's the the fit moving forward for this front office
1: It certainly looks that way. I think that the Blue Jays will be diligent in their process. There are, you know, certain certain items in place by MLB to make sure that everyone gets a fair chance. But what John Schneider did was remarkable. It could have been uh, a much different scenario, right? And I think that at the time when Charlie Montoya was fired and uh, Schneider took over, we sort of looked at The angel situation with Joe Madden, and we looked at the Philly situation with Rob Thompson, and we had two very different cases. I would say that Schneider probably fell closer to Thompson than he did to Phil Nevin. Hmm. Uh, So it's there's a lot of uh, decisions that are still left to be made. I do think that Schneider is a good fit, and Mitch Bannon from Sports Illustrated uh, reported after that game too there that there is overwhelming support uh, for John Schneider to return uh, by the players so he spoke to players in the clubhouse and pretty much every single one of them said yeah I would I would like to see him uh, return so that is a pretty good indication that Schneider is building and it is at the start of building something very special for the long haul here.
0: Speaking of building something special, of course, and John Schneider would say this about Luis Castillo. Uh, I'm sure he'd say it about the whole series, even though no Jays fan wants to hear it right now. You know, part of this is you have to tip your cap to the Mariners. They had Luis Castillo completely shut you down. They found a way to come back from down 8-1. I know that you got to look at the Mariners side of things. They seem like they were maybe a little bit ahead of schedule as a core, do you think that they're a team that we're going to have to start talking about when we talk about the top teams in the AL East the next little while?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a kind of a surprising story a little bit. I know that there were projections at the beginning of the year that maybe indicated the Mariners had a chance to um, outdo the Astros there. We know that that didn't work out. The Astros are still very much at the top of their game and, and, and extremely powerful in the AL West, but... Yes, I honestly do think that they are surprising everyone, maybe not themselves, but everyone around them. And I will be watching this ALDS series very closely because it's. I, I honestly believe that the Mariners are going to make it more interesting than maybe we are expecting them to. And that is really exciting. It is exciting to see a young team sort of defeat the odds. And I know that everyone in Toronto was expecting that maybe to be the Blue Jays but when you look at the Mariners and what they've been able to accomplish, the brand of baseball that they play is kind of unique for this day and age. Hmm. And uh, I don't know. It will be very, very interesting to see how far this team can go. And I think
0: they're an interesting parallel to this year's Blue Jays team, in part because of the the young core and like, certainly certainly built differently. Julio Rodriguez as a star center fielder and the rest of the lineup being a little more ho-hum and then the pitching staff having a few more younger pieces. Uh, but that was a team that was aggressive in the offseason. They went out and got Robbie Ray, right? As the Jays got Kevin Gosman and those deals were very similar. And then they were more, the more aggressive one at the trade deadline going in for Luis Castillo. Now we don't need to relitigate whether the Jays should have been in on Luis Castillo, whether there are nowhere Elvis Martes uh, all through the system, which I don't think there are. There are only so many prospects that good. However, when you look back on a deadline that in real time, we all kind of thought was underwhelming. What, what does this front office have to answer for you tomorrow? And I know, I I don't mean that literally like Julia, what question are you going to ask tomorrow? Mm -hmm. But I mean, this front office either decided that this team was close enough already and they didn't need all that much help. In which case that was a, a mis-evaluation or they decided that this team wasn't close enough and now wasn't the time, in which case they, they kind of half measured the trade deadline. So um, I I'd imagine it comes up a little bit tomorrow. How would you like Ross Atkins to contextualize where they ended up versus where they were in August?
1: Yeah, that is, that is a fascinating question, Blake. And I honestly don't know if I have a good answer for you because there are so many different uh, brains involved in the strategy of a trade deadline or the strategy of an off season. And there are so many statistics and analyses that go into it that, you know, we mere mortals will never hear about them. Right. And we'll never know everything that goes into that. Um, I would expect, honestly, just, Um, just directness, you know, just honesty from from Ross Atkins. What could have gone differently, and what have you learned from this? I think that is a big question is what have the Blue Jays learned as a team and as a front office, as a coaching staff, and what sort of uh, items will be put into place to make sure that next year is a better result? Because we know that this year was already better than last year. Um, but we don't want necessarily next level to mean just the the next series, right? <laughs> and then you get to boss level, I guess, and, and you make the World Series. I don't know. But directness, honesty, and, and here's what we learned. Here's what we could have done differently. Here's how we're going to prevent this from happening again and, and really take the next big step forward.
0: It's a tough one, and I guess I I do want to ask a follow, and this isn't, again, this isn't a what are you actually going to ask tomorrow, but this is Mm -hmm. something that uh, my colleague J.D. Bunkus does all the time, usually for preseason media availabilities with top-of-the-organization people, but let's say you have a truth serum dart, and Mm -hmm. you can, you know, after Ross Atkins' presser is done tomorrow, you can hit him with the truth serum, and he has to answer one question honestly. What are you asking him?
1: Oof. that's a, that's a good one. I guess um, if you could go back in time, would you have been a little more aggressive in the starting pitcher market? That is, uh, I think that's the one that will linger the most for Blue Jays fans is the what if on the, on the starting uh, side of things. Um, and yeah, man, if I have a, a truth serum dart, I'm sorry, you said that and my mind was just like, what, how would I use it? Mm. just in my personal just in my personal
0: life you know oh yeah yeah you might choose to not even use it on Ross Atkins and just uh, use it elsewhere um well here's one and this isn't really the true serum thing but it's a it's a hypothetical I've been kicking around and and I'd like Mm -hmm. your take on it um Vladimir Guerrero Jr. had a down year compared to last year Mm -hmm. a down year enough that 2021 kind of stands out as the outlier right now not 2022 and i don't mean to say vlad's not good obviously he had a very good year at the plate Mm -hmm. overall but how does it change the accounting of where this team is going if it turns out that vladimir guerrero jr is just a really good ball player and not an MVP level ball player
1: that's a good question i think that the number one thing that might change is the idea of how the blue jays go about contracts here um there has been you know the 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 question has started to emerge would you rather keep vlad or would you rather keep Bo? which is i i honestly don't think we're there yet but it does start to make those conversations a little bit more interesting that said i still have full faith that vladimir grower jr is an mvp level um player offense was down across the league this year. It's not, um, it's not a Blue days exclusive thing. And he still managed to put in the numbers that he did. He hits the ball extremely hard. And if he can figure out the launch angle, then he will be good to go. And that is why the offseason is so valuable is that is when you have time to tweak some things, try out new things and, and come back with the adjustments that you may need to see an uptick in your numbers. So I still have faith that this was, this was a down year for Vladi and this was the outlier. If it turns out that maybe, you know, in June or July of next year, we're still seeing sort of lukewarm numbers from what we expect, then the contract conversations get really, really interesting, as well as, what, how will the Blue Jays approach, say, a trade deadline and, and where they are in the American League?
0: I tend to agree with you. You know, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is still only 23. He's one of the – he hits the ball harder than almost anyone in baseball. And, and mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, that's a pretty great core skill to have and, and a good spot yeah. to be up on the leaderboards. Uh, I do think he'll figure it out. I just wanted to throw that one by you. Um, yeah. Julia, last serious question for you. George Springer 33. We saw him play probably more than I expected this year, but he dealt with injuries throughout the year. Um, I know some of this probably depends on the availability of a center fielder in free agency or on the trade market, but do you think the Jays are at a point where they might revisit what George Springer's usage or role looks like?
1: Perhaps. I don't think that anyone would – just drop that from consideration. It does depend on availabilities like you said, and, and the Blue Jays still do seem to believe in George Springer, but it is true that he was pretty banged up, right? There there was a lot uh, going on there that uh, maybe prevented him from being 100% at the plate um, I, or in center field. I still think that he was playing just fine defensively, but we did see... Uh, the struggles we we were there we all saw it. So is, is this something that he can bounce back from? It is. It looks increasingly like maybe not. Right? Maybe he is sort of in a in a, a down curve here. And there are there are there is more for the Blue Jays to consider at center field. Uh, I think honestly we'll know more tomorrow. Um, truly believe that Ross Atkins will have at least some updates uh, when it comes to George Springer. But, you know, it wouldn't be the end of the world if he was a DH, um, a little more full-time than he was this year. That does mean, however, that the Blue Jays will need to address center field. So that is one of the several fascinating questions that will sort of follow the Blue Jays into the off season. We'll know more tomorrow. We'll know more by the GM meetings or winter Mm -hmm. meetings or whatever it is, but that is one that, that we should follow closely for sure.
0: Julia, what are you most looking forward to for your off season?
1: Oh, I'm looking forward to Panama. Mm -hmm. Certainly looking forward to that. It'll be a fun time. I get to see my parents. I haven't seen them in a, in a bit, you know, so we're going to sort of meet halfway. They come from Brazil. I I, I go from from Canada and uh, to be honest with you, Blake, Pulling 12, 13-hour days uh, for for those postseason games, the apartment is a little neglected. So, mm. looking forward to my to my fall cleaning as well.
0: Well, yeah, I gotta I gotta get on that as well. I do the the annual fall like go through the closet mm-hmm. and see what's getting donated and what doesn't fit anymore uh, because I've been an embarrassing human during the pandemic. So, uh, yeah, I I hope you get that rest in. I hope you get a nice clean apartment and, and have a blast in Panama, Julia. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, today and all year.
1: Yeah, it's been it's been a fun season, and I'm looking forward to many more.
0: Julia Kreutz of MLB.com of BlueJays.com. Uh, we have a couple texts in the text line before we hit a break here. Um, one person with a very, very bad beat. He had a Teoscar Hernandez home run and Jays win parlay on Saturday. Uh, oof, that's a, uh, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Um, there was also um, a gentleman. I can't remember his name, but was saying that Washington isn't a good, Oh, it was Mike from T.O., Um it, That Washington wasn't a good comparison for the Jays um, because they were selling the franchise and, and, um, there are a couple of differences there. I, again, I just want to reiterate that my point was not that there are direct comparisons. I just use them as an example of how fleeting a core's window can be. You think something's a long-term core and then the winds blow and it's not. Now, again, not a not an exact comparison. There never are in sports, um, but it is a recent World Series champion that the window didn't stay open as long as we maybe anticipated um yeah guys you gotta sign your texts if you're gonna send them um there are a couple uh a couple other ones in there but um w- there's some debate from some people in there about whether or not this counts as making the playoffs look as a baseball nerd as a someone who uh, likes the history of the game i i don't love that these are the definitions now and, and it's you know, it can be considered the same, but it's the playoffs. They made the playoffs. The MLB calls it the or sorry, MLB calls it the playoffs. It's a best two out of three. It's not a wild card game anymore. It's the playoffs. It's just what it is. It's the same as if the NBA expanded to 32 playoff 32 teams and 32 playoff teams. You'd say everyone made the playoffs. It'd be a silly system, but the definition the league gives is the definition the league gives. We have some arbitration estimate numbers. We'll go through them with Ben Nicholson-Smith a little bit. Uh, But my pal Matt Swartz over at MLB Trade Rumors does his annual arbitration estimates. They're usually fairly accurate. I felt pretty good about myself today because I did my own, and they weren't that far off. They're pretty good. Matt has a lot more track record doing them and probably a lot more data to go off of, but not bad. Um, If you're curious and arbitration estimates are fun and they're helpful guides, but a lot of times teams and players will avoid arbitration altogether, come to a a deal that's somewhere close to the estimate and in between the two ranges. Uh, But you're looking at about 15 million for Vlad, about 14 million for Teoscar, uh, about 4 million for Jansen, um, four and a half for Romano six for Boba And then it goes down from there and you can get into some of the lower relievers and stuff. Uh, the Jays have 13 arbitration eligible players in total right now. Um, I did some, some math with those arbitration estimates. I assumed a couple of non tenders, by the way, um, just because the numbers versus the roster spot versus where you could else you could use that budget. Um, the, Jays would have about $172 million committed to 18 players, uh, plus all the minimum guys on the 40-man that I haven't counted for the the salary there because usually we don't, and we just uh, add that at the end. Um, the Jays spent about $175 million on salary this year, according to Fangraph, so they're already close to that number uh, before factoring in things like stripling as a free agent and strengthening this core. Let's take a break. Let's set the scene for the offseason ahead with Ben Nicholson-Smith of Sportsnet and At The Letters. Uh, ben is next on j Plus on Sportsnet 590, The Fan.